When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History here. It's New Year's Eve, which means a couple of things. One is that 2021 is drawing to an end. But more importantly, means your opportunity to vote in the Pod Bible Best Podcast categories is nearly over. Midnight tonight. Midnight. GMT. Zulu time. It's all over. The competition is closed. Now, you know when you're young, I look at my kids and think, wow, look at those kids. They could do anything. They could win an FA Cup. They could play first base for the Yankees. They could become Supreme NATO Commander of Europe. They could be a scientist. They could win a Nobel Prize. They could win a Pulitzer. They could do anything. Now, as you get older, it's like a funnel. And you just get squidged in ever for... Now, at my age, I'm not going to win a Nobel Prize. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to win it. I'm not going to play professional sport in any way, shape, or form. Slowly, the opportunities just fall away because of your own incompetence, laziness, or lack of imagination. And what's left to you is a very narrow set of opportunities. And what is left to me, Dan Snow, age 43, is this opportunity. To win a regional podcast competition for most informative podcast. It is what it is. It is what it is. And in this position I find myself in, it is probably best to win most informative podcast in the Pod Bible Awards because not doing so would be marginally worse. I'm not saying it's the life I wanted when I was a kid, folks. I'm not saying this is the Mars mission, first human on a different planet kind of accolade I was expecting to get when I was 10, but it's an accolade nonetheless. So long story short, get over to Pod Bible Podcast Awards, just Google it, or follow the link in this info on this New Year's Eve and make an old man very happy. In the meantime, folks, because it's also New Year's Eve, our minds are turning to sex, particularly sex in the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages, not Middle Age, in the Middle Ages, all right? We're talking to Kate Harvey. She's an honorary research fellow at Birkbeck University of London. She is an absolute legend. She knows everything about sexuality, gender, emotions, and the body in the Middle Ages. She's written a book called The Fires of Lust, Sex in the Middle Ages. If you're staying in tonight, doing nothing, listening to a podcast on New Year's Eve, this podcast could be perfect for you because it's all about other people having sex, having a good time. How did medieval people really think about sex and how are those thoughts different to ours today? You're about to find out. Dr. Kate Harvey's about to tell you. Lucky you. Also, another request, as the new year dawns, make it a history hit new year. We've got some monumental projects happening this year that are going to blow your mind. Go to historyhit.tv, historyhit.tv, sign up today. Well, tomorrow. But in the meantime, folks, here's Dr. Kate Harvey. Enjoy. Catherine, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me on. Why is it that we always think that previous generations to us were like fantastically either prudish, deviant, lunatic when it comes to sex? Like we all think that the past is like a totally different world. 
Yeah, I don't know whether we've all watched too much Game of Thrones or something, but no, it is one of those areas where we really tend to assume that people were really, really different. And definitely when I started writing the book and talking to people, I realised just how different they thought we were. Given that you've spent so much time thinking about this, researching it, is what strikes you the familiarity? Because from your book, I'm really struck by how many of these issues we're still talking about today. And it does seem that, funnily enough, our ancestors feel much more familiar than people might think. I think so. I mean, I think some of the ways that they were framing it have changed. You know, some of our terminologies, when we think in terms of things like straight and gay, I don't know that that's very helpful to project back onto the Middle Ages. But definitely, yeah, one of the things that really struck me was how many of the same sort of issues they're dealing with and whether that's sort of personal things like, you know, the difficulties of finding a partner or infertility or something, or whether that's bigger social issues like how do you deal with prostitution? Do you ban it or do you regulate it? A lot of it did... Yeah, it was surprisingly familiar, I think, more so than I expected it to be. Should we start with shame? Mm. Because that's probably something that, although we still have lots of issues around sex and shame in our society, we probably think we're far more enlightened. We're all shagging away much more than they were in certain periods. I mean, obviously, you're talking about the Middle Ages, which is a gigantic and geographically disparate and religiously disparate thing. But what about shame? I guess that's where the whole sort of the religious element comes in and maybe that's where they were different to us in that there is this whole background of Catholicism and so things like the influence of the idea of Adam and Eve and original sin and therefore, you know, after Eve ate that apple, everything to do with sex is sinful and shameful. A lot of that goes on and so there are people who sort of torment themselves trying to be celibate and all that sort of thing. But of course, a lot of that's the clergy and the very devout and I don't think we should assume that everybody was the same. There is some sort of sense sometimes of the church trying to impose that and that some of these punishments, certainly punishments for things like adultery, some of the things I look in the book about the sort of public humiliation of people, some of it was just having to process through the streets in your shift or something to the church, but some of it was there was a really bizarre punishment called running in the south of France in the 13th century where they tied people together at the level of their genitals and made them run through the streets being flogged. I'd imagine that would make you feel quite embarrassed and quite ashamed. Beyond that, there is this sense of sort of people behaving more like us and also this sense that, you know, sex could be something funny. So lots of different people, lots of different attitudes. They didn't have one attitude to sex any more than we do. Do you see the kind of really quite violent changes towards sex that we've had in the 20th century, partly as a result of the pill and contraception and science and various things. I mean, did it really differ from place to place? I read that Venice was a place where, well, certainly had a reputation as a place where unmarried sex was less frowned upon than elsewhere, for example. Yeah, I think you definitely do get variations in attitude from place to place and also over time. So, for example, you get panics about same-sex sex at certain times. And somewhere else in Italy, um, Florence, in the 14th, 15th centuries, there was this mass panic about men having sex with other men. And they set up this special institution to deal with it. And thousands and thousands of men are hauled through that court. Whereas in, say, England at the same time, there seems to be hardly any interest in it. So there's really quite a lot of variation in a really quite an interesting way. Although non-religiously sanctioned sex was shameful, was there any sort of sex positive around, like in terms of health and mental wellness? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that is really interesting and that really does seem to set up a conflict with these religious ideas is the fact that in medical terms, sex is very much part of a healthy lifestyle because medieval medicine rests on this idea of the humours and you need to keep the humours in balance. And having sex is one of the ways to do that. So as long as it's in moderation, it's a good thing. You know, there are stories about people who die of both too much and too little sex. So, you know, it has to be in balance. But I think for most people, it would have been seen as something like a healthy diet or something that it can be good for you. 
What about age? One thing we're always really struck by is people getting married when they're sort of eight and nine and ten and everything. So what was actually going on there? Were people having sex with children regularly? No, I think marriage at that age is much, much rarer than we think it was. Usually, if it does happen, it's very elite levels of society. And usually then they tend to marry them, but they don't consummate the marriage until they're as well into their teens. And probably for ordinary people, the average age of marriage seems to have been early 20s, which is probably much older than we tend to think it was. And again, there are sort of medical reasons for that in terms of, they say teenagers are very lustful, but they think it's bad for them to have too much sex. And they're worried that the children of teenagers will be feeble. And so generally, it's, it's not seen as a good thing. More broadly, definitely, I think they shared our repugnance with child abuse. And although obviously there are all sorts of horrendous cover-ups in the church and the like, although I'm not sure we've moved on too much from that, it was something that was frowned upon that they did take seriously. And that, yeah, again, not as common as we think. There are parts of your book which, I don't know, are we allowed to find them funny? I mean, some of the things people wrote about sex, just like <laughs> people wrote things that remain true to this day and things that are like total balls. It's fascinating, <laughs> the kind of range of things that people write. I guess that's no change from the present. Yeah, one of the things that I, I did find, I mean, some of the literary stuff is really bizarre, isn't it? Some of those sort of stories about genitals wandering around by themselves as characters in stories. But also, I mean, I think some of the real life stuff, one of the things that people often seem to find quite funny is these annulment cases where men are accused of impotence and then they have to sort of demonstrate their potency and they get physically inspected. Yeah, it does all sound quite funny. There is a part of it that goes, but would you think that was funny if that was your neighbours physically examining you and what did that do to those marriages that they were then had to stay in? There has always been a humorous element to sex, hasn't it? And I think they very much saw that. Well, I think you have a bit about oversexed men. Like, you'd more like to get plague and you're, what was it, sitting at a bath of eggs or something and drawing eggs into the anus? I mean, it's extraordinary. Yeah, so it's how that's even physically possible. I haven't persuaded anybody to try that one, but... <laughs> yeah. A bath full of raw eggs, that's the cure. That's one of the possible cures, yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, there are all sorts of contraception. There's a story about a woman who supposedly swallowed a bee and then never had any more children. <laughs> Some of these things do seem truly bizarre. I mean, a lot of them are based, again, on this sort of the humoral properties and that there is sound medical theory in medieval terms behind them, but they do sound frankly ridiculous to us. They do, and we'll come to some of the treatments as well about the fish and the vagina and various things like that, maybe at the end of the podcast. <laughs> but what about consent? We talked about underage, so people get married too young, but we think we're all very enlightened now because we marry for love and we have far more choice, many of us, in who we choose to marry. But your work strongly emphasises that consent and desirability was always part of medieval marriage. Yeah, I think it was far more important than we tend to allow. I mean, if they did have all these considerations about sort of social status and a suitable marriage and approved by the family and all the rest of it. But I think generally, no, there is this sense that you should marry somebody you want to marry. And that sort of very much part of the church's idea of marriage is that it must be consensual. And that's one of the reasons why they're very uncomfortable with child marriages, because you should be able to consent. And that consent is very much what makes a marriage. It comes up again when I look at rape and, you know, the idea again that consent is very important. It does matter to them far more than we maybe assume that it would. Interesting. Though, once you're married, that consent is assumed, which, of course, was true until Britain, until bizarrely recently. Very recently, yeah. They have this doctrine about the marital debt. And so basically, yeah, once you're married to somebody, that's it. You're assumed to have consented to sex with them and you are supposed to have sex with them 
basically whenever they ask. That becomes more and more important in the later Middle Ages. So in the early Middle Ages, there were all these rules about, you know, you mustn't have sex during Lent and on church and all these sorts of things. And by the 12th, 13th century, they're actually getting to the point where they're going, no, actually, if that's the only way to pay the marital debt, you can have sex on Good Friday. It's better than one of you has commits adultery or something. So it's, you know, it becomes a really serious thing for them. And what about virginity? Is that theological? Is it from the Virgin Mary? Is it about property and about control? Like this sort of obsession with virginity, quote-unquote purity. Yeah, I mean, I think it is very much a Christian ideal, isn't it? And I think, it, yeah, it does very much go back to the Bible and, and to all these various saints. And one of the things that's very interesting, actually, is that it is about men as well as women. We tend to very, very much think about virginity as being a female quality. And obviously the famous saints, it is people like the Virgin Mary, But actually, in the Middle Ages, they are also quite interested in the virginity of Christ, the virginity of John the Baptist, and the virginity of clergy. A lot of the, I've done quite a lot of work on medieval bishops, and there's quite a lot about them being celebrated as virgins in a way that I think is quite surprising to us because we don't think of it as being about men. You're listening to Dr. Kate Harvey. We're talking about medieval sex. This is where we are. More coming up. Ancient history fans, this is our moment. Subscribe to the Ancients now to get your weekly goodness of ancient history. We've got the big topics. So through this material, we're actually looking at this entangled sum of hundreds and thousands, in fact, of stories of life across ancient Eurasia. We've got the big names. The Romans, of course, become so powerful and the Romans conquered the whole of the Mediterranean world. And Hannibal was the one who challenged the Romans the most. We've got the big discoveries. And these are the only surviving boxing gloves from the Roman Empire. And we even have some groundbreaking new archaeological detective stories. Baths of Cleopatra. I had never come across any such thing before. Subscribe to The Ancients on History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? 
Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you're using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Speaking of virgins and a person who will not end up being a medieval bishop, what about the poor monk who was persecuted by that demon who kept jerking him off? I mean, I felt very sorry for him. <laughs> yeah, and this is another really weird thing because, again, we tend to think of virginity very much as a physical state, don't we, and sort of losing your virginity. They sort of see it as a physical state, but also a mental state. And so somebody like this poor monk who, yeah, this demon keeps interfering with him and the bishop says, no, that's it, he's not a true virgin. You can lose your virginity. You've never had sex, but you've had, you've masturbated or you've, yeah, been polluted by a demon or even you've had impure thoughts and allegedly that's it, you're not a virgin. The flip side of that is that because it's a mental state, they think you can regain your virginity. And so you do get people like Marjorie Kemp, who was a 15th century Norfolk mystic, who she was a mother of, I think, 14, and then decided she wanted to be a mystic. And she spends a lot of her time talking to Jesus, Marjorie Kemp. And he reassures her that, no, in heaven, she'll dance with the virgins because she is sort of truly pure in her mind. I find it very interesting, though, the idea that this poor 12th century monk, he must have, unless he was reported on, but like, if he's talking about this demon interfering with him, that must be like him reporting it to the authorities himself, poor thing. It's extraordinary, the process by some which some of these cases you mentioned come into the public space. Some of the things that mentally this does to people, there are cases of priests who castrated themselves trying to be celibate. Or, you know, there are all sorts of horrible stories about people immersing themselves in icy rivers in the middle of winter, throwing themselves in beds of nettles and all sorts of things. And so I think there's no doubt about it that this sort of ideal of celibacy did do a lot of damage to a lot of people, particularly a lot of the clergy. And what about ideas around sexual activeness? I always do these podcasts and the idea that either the men or the women are the kind of sexual aggressors or the ones that are weak and susceptible to sex all the time. I mean, does that change as well? I think probably what most people find most surprising is that, and again, it goes back to medicine, actually, and the humoral ideas, although also the sort of religious idea of the temptress, is this idea that women are really sexually voracious. It's partly, as I say, it's to do with humours and the idea that women are naturally cold and so they sort of, they want men's heat, which they can get from sex. And so women are supposed to be very lustful. And again, that comes out a lot in a lot of the literature. You know, there's a, there's a lot of medieval poems about women who are obsessed with sex and obsessed with big penises and really sort of lustful in a way that doesn't fit with maybe a lot of our stereotypes about sort of passive women. And what about that men are incorrigible sex fiends as well? Does that ebb and flow or is that a consistent theme? I think that is always there. And I th- partly, again, because of this sort of humoral thing that men need to have sex for their health. And that's one of the justifications for the legalisation of prostitution and the establishment of town brothels. And of course, they are sort of 
framed by this idea that we're all sinners and we're all lustful and so both men and women are terrible people. Although they have also got this idea about sort of men should be able to, because they're manly, should be able to exert more self-control. So you do get some really interesting stuff about adultery where some people actually suggest male adultery is worse than female adultery because actually they should be displaying self-control and setting example, whereas what do you expect of women? You know, they've got no self-control. Speaking of control, contraception, you've got some fairly scary methods in this. Yeah, all sorts of bizarre stuff. Some of it is fairly sensible. Basically, a lot of it rests around the idea that they think both men and women have to emit seed to conceive. So a lot of their methods are sort of framed around trying to stop that. So there's quite a lot of talk about coitus interrupters, which obviously it's fairly sensible then there's sort of stuff about after you have sex you sort of you get up and jump around or you keep sneezing or something and then there are yeah the more bizarre they are most of them based on humoral things so a lot of it's trying to sort of adopt the properties of an animal or something to alter your complexion or to cool down your body so that you'll be less lustful all sorts of bizarre things you put mint on the genitals you can hang a weasel's testicles around your neck There are all sorts of bizarre amulets and things. There's one involving, I think it's elephant dung. I mean, I don't know whether that just makes you so repulsive. Nobody wants to have sex with you. Maybe that's how that works. Say a woman who supposedly swallowed a bee and then never conceived again. They do tend to make sense in humoral terms, but did they work? You suspect not. But I think it's interesting that the intent was there. And, you know, not everybody in the Middle Ages was just having 14 children and quite happy about it. Yeah, good point. And also, it's probably impossible to even get a handle on this, but I was very struck by, in elite marriages, if they're not marriages of love, if they're marriages of politics and statecraft, is it acceptable for both parties to have sex outside those relationships or just the men? What about women perhaps often trapped within those marriages? Yeah, I mean, I think probably those are some of the sort of, to us, least palatable cases because of the obsession with inheritance. And obviously they are far more concerned about wives getting pregnant and passing off somebody else's baby as the heir than they are about men fathering many children. Although I don't think that necessarily means that they're quite happy with the idea of men just going off with everybody else. There is this idea that they are supposed to be sort of displaying self-control and setting an example. They were increasingly concerned with the sanctity of marriage and marriage is a sacrament and therefore it's something that needs to be respected. In terms of sort of women and adultery, I think what isn't true is this idea that we see a lot of female adultery as a justification to kill a woman or shut her up in a convent. That's actually very, very rare. And there is a lot more sympathy for sort of women in unhappy marriages. I can't remember which one it is, but there is one very famous medieval theologian who says actually a lot of female adultery is caused by male drunkenness and cruelty and therefore should have sympathy with these women. So it's a lot more complicated, I think, their attitudes than we tend to assume. And what about those sources? Because this must be so hard for you, because if you're relying on these church courts and sources, I mean, they're not going to be, they're going to be coming from a certain point of view, aren't they? Mm. Do you have other wonderful random sex diarists telling you what was going on from a non-religious source, for example? Not as much as I'd like. I mean, if somebody could discover a medieval Samuel Pepys or something, that would be brilliant. I mean, you do get odd little sort of collections of letters or something. There's a marvellous set from 14th century Italy. It's a merchant and his wife, the Dantinis. And there's a lot in there, for example, about their experiences of infertility and the various advice people gave them for how to conceive. So you do get little snippets of that in things like the past and letters, little snippets of things that show you people's attitudes you do get snippets of sort of popular culture and verses and things. But no, a lot of it is prescriptive. A lot of it is framed by the church. And that is a problem. You know, sometimes you're trying to read from the silences. It's medieval history for you, isn't it? We don't know everything we'd like to know. And that's the fascinating thing about the church. You know, you've got these 
I mean, St. Augustine is so mm. appalled by sex. And then you also have the Bishop of Winchester running brothels mm. in Southwark. People find it very confusing. I find it very confusing. It does come back to this thing that we said at the beginning about, you know, there's a very broad period, it's a very big area, and it's a lot of people. And in the same way as we don't all think the same today, we tend to talk as if the church is this sort of monolith with one opinion. But actually, even if you read broadly through the ecclesiastical sources, you do find differences of opinion and, you know, ranging from the type of people who are almost seem to be going, nobody should ever have sex, to some of the parish priests who seem to be going, well... There might be justifications for contraception if, if you really can't afford enough children. So that range of opinions, I think, is really quite interesting. And as you say, they're wrestling with many of the same issues we are today. Yeah, I say a lot of the personal issues, but also you mentioned the Bishop of Winchester and, and his um, brothels in Southwark. I think that's a really interesting one, actually, in comparisons with the modern attitudes, because up until the sort of the late 13th century, basically their approach is they try to ban prostitution. They try and chuck sex workers out of cities. There are no brothels. And then from the late 13th and more into the 14th century, a lot of towns start to legalise brothels. They set up official brothels in cities, official red light districts, and they go for regulating. They go for trying to make sure that there are decent working conditions, that they prosecute men who are violent towards prostitutes. And some people think that's a good idea and some people don't. Towards the end of the Middle Ages, it starts to swing back towards and maybe we should ban it again. But, you know, that's a debate we're still having, isn't it? They've just said Spain, I think, is trying to ban prostitution again. You know, so it's still, it's very much an ongoing debate. Problems that we can never work out the answer to. Speaking of problems we can never work out the answer to, can you give me the penis enlargement recipe that's in your book? Oh, crikey. Um, can I off the top of my head? It's, is it chopped? They can tell me it's chopped up earthworms and jujube oil. That, that's okay. Oh. Yeah. So there are several of them, but I think probably one of the most disgusting is the one about chopped earthworms and jujube oil. There's stuff about beating your penis with sticks. There's all sorts of dietary things you can do. There's, yeah, all sorts of um, remedies. And if a woman wants to snare a man... This potion is mind-blowingly unpleasant, but she can create a potion made from what? There's one to do with a fish that you've put in your vagina. There's, a, there's all sorts of unpleasant ones. There's, some of them use menstrual blood. There's a woman in Italy who I write about in the book who ends up in deep trouble with the courts because she's made some sort of potion. It's menstrual blood and belly button fluff, I think she uses, to entrap this nobleman's son. And uh, yeah, she ends up in all sorts of trouble for that. It's deeply horrible stuff. Works every time. Are you one of these wonderful scholars who, because you work on such a broad period, that other friends and historians just kind of, if they come across some letters doing other work into a different particular field, they go, hang on, this, this might be right up your alley. And she just gets sent medieval pornography and filth all day long. Yeah, all sorts of weird conversations. I remember somebody coming up to me at a conference and going, yeah, we must talk about medieval wet dreams. That was um, an odd one. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. So the weird stuff's come my way over the years, yeah. Well, I'm glad you've put it all in one place for us all to enjoy. So thank you very much, Catherine. What's the book called? It's The Fires of Lust, Sex in the Middle Ages. Fires of Lust. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks, folks, for listening to this episode of Dance History. As I tell you all the time, I love doing these podcasts. They are the best thing I do professionally. I feel very lucky to have you listening to them. If you fancied giving them a rating and review, obviously the best rating review possible would be ideal. It makes a big difference to us. I know it's a pain, but we'd really, really be grateful. And if you want to listen to the other podcasts in our ever-increasing stable, don't forget we've got Susanna Lipscomb with Not Just the Tudors. That's flying high in the charts. We've got our medieval podcast, Gone Medieval, with the brilliant Matt Lewis and Kat Jarman. We've got The Ancients with our very own Tristan Hughes. And we've got warfare as well, dealing with all things military. 
Please go and check those out wherever you get your pods. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just one pound a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.